Welcome to Tooled Up Education's Researcher of the Month, where Dr. Cathy Weston selects a paper from a notable researcher that will be of interest to parents and school staff everywhere. Dr. Susie Bauer-Brown is a lecturer in social psychology at the Thomas Coram Research Unit, UCL. As a qualitative social psychologist, Susie's research takes an interdisciplinary approach to exploring gender, LGBTQ identities, and the experiences of parents and children within diverse family forms. Prior to joining UCL, Susie was based at the Centre for Family Research at Cambridge University and completed her PhD research with Professor Susan Golombok, looked at the social experiences of trans and non-binary parents and the school experiences of gender-diverse adolescents. Susie is on the editorial board for LGBTQ Plus Family, an interdisciplinary journal, and regularly speaks about gender diversity to academic and non-academic audiences. How are you, Susie? Yeah, I'm doing well, thank you. Well, we are going to feature one of your most recent papers for our Researcher of the Month feature within Tooled Up Education. And the title of that is Binary, Trans, Non-Binary and Gender Questioning Adolescence Experiences in UK Schools. So thank you so much for being free to talk to me about that today. Thank you for having me. Now, that paper, as I just said, it focuses on the experience of gender diverse adolescents in UK schools. Can you tell me a little bit more about what the term gender diverse means and a bit of each of the three identities that you focus on within your research? Yeah, absolutely. So gender diverse, I'm using as a kind of umbrella term to refer to anyone who doesn't identify as cis. And cis refers to someone whose gender identity does correspond with the sex that they were assigned at birth. But gender diverse is kind of a really broad umbrella term that refers to anyone who doesn't fit within that. And the three different gender identities I focused on within the paper, as you mentioned, were binary trans, non-binary and gender questioning. And binary trans refers to someone whose gender identity doesn't correspond with the sex they were assigned at birth but they still do identify within the gender binary. So perhaps they were assigned male at birth, but now they identify as a girl or a woman. Non-binary refers to someone whose gender doesn't fit within that binary. So they might identify as partly male, partly female, or use a, a term that doesn't fit at all within those kind of frameworks. And gender questioning uh, just refers to anyone who kind of isn't sure about their identity. And the reason that I wanted to include them within the research is that they are often kind of missed out, both from research on cis young people and research on trans and non-binary young people. And what sort of schools did you look at as contexts? So we looked at children at any school. So it was an online survey conducted in collaboration with Stonewall. So children were at a complete range of schools across the UK. And how many responses did you get? So the survey in total had over 3,000 responses of LGBT young people at school, but I focused on a subgroup of that. So I was only focusing on the experiences of gender diverse young people, and I reduced the sample quite considerably so that I'd be able to look at the findings kind of in an in-depth way. And what exactly did you sort of imagine that you might find out? What were your sort of hypotheses and what were your main findings? Yeah, so I wanted to look at both what young people's experiences were and also how they navigated kind of the school environment. 
And the main findings focused on how young people experienced uh, discrimination in a number of different ways at school. And that was not just from other individuals within the school environment, so peers and teachers, but also how they found the kind of spaces at school to not be inclusive of their identities. And that was kind of an important finding of the study that it's important to look beyond bullying and not just think about bullying as the only difficulty that young people are facing, but also to look at whether single sex spaces are appropriate or not and also look at the curriculum and whether that's inclusive of gender diversity as well. So there's a few different things, isn't there? There's sort of the relationships in school, and then there is the sort of the space and environment, and then also the language. So those are sort of the three things that I was thinking about and reflecting on when I was reading your paper. But it also reminded me that in terms of what goes on in school, where some schools have done some trailblazing and brilliant initiatives and, you know, having lovely, for example, rainbow zebra crossings or doors in school that celebrate the LGBT rainbow flag. Some of them have even experienced protests outside the school. So I'm just, I was imagining what that might be like for teachers or schools who are trying their best to be inclusive. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. And yeah, the backlash against the example of the rainbow zebra crossing was, yeah, really quite shocking. And I think that shows that it can be quite a hostile climate for schools and young people who are attempting to improve the school environment and to kind of celebrate LGBTQ identities. So let's get back to your paper. What were the things that they seemed to feel worse about, if you like? What were the bits that made their mental health much more challenged or feel they felt challenged by? Mm-hmm. So I think the main things were the curriculum, spaces, peers and teachers. Um, so starting with the curriculum, it was often the case that LGBT identities weren't mentioned at all within the curriculum, or it might be just one assembly within the whole year that kind of includes any references to LGBT identities. And young people also mentioned that when LGBT identities were included, this generally tended to focus only on lesbian and gay identities. So that was an important factor that made young people feel kind of invisible within the school environment. Spaces was another really important thing. And single sex spaces were found to be particularly difficult. So toilets, changing rooms, deciding which sport to kind of participate in as well. So they were found to be difficult and schools often didn't have appropriate spaces to kind of uh, include gender diverse young people. And that was found to be particularly difficult for the non-binary and gender questioning young people and because they didn't feel that they could fit within either a male or female space that was found to be particularly difficult and I think that highlights the importance of looking not just at kind of trans identities as a whole but looking kind of within that and thinking which young people might be particularly struggling within the school environment. So it strikes me that if I was running a secondary school, that a good approach might be to do some research oneself. So if I was a head teacher or head of pastoral care, maybe I could ask, you know, students how they're doing, thinking and feeling, and they could be part and parcel of some of the things that the support mechanisms that you think are probably 
best because I think schools sometimes struggle with thinking about where to begin with this topic and maybe just that leaning into those pupils in the way that you've done as a researcher might be quite fruitful. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good idea. And some of the positive experiences from the young people referred to teachers setting up LGBT clubs, for example, and listening to the needs of students themselves. So I think that's a really important idea. So I think it's about really creating something quite bespoke in terms of support for that particular community, because that's the word that you've used. Mm. You know, it is a, and a community you know, is about everyone in it and how they're doing thinking and feeling. So I think it's a it's a nice idea to sort of go along with that. Or potentially, I was thinking as well, they could use your research paper with older students, you know, as a sort of a springboard for conversation even. Mm, yeah, and I, I think the word bespoke is a really good one. And another one that I would say could be helpful is proactive, because some of the research on gender diverse youth highlights that policies are often reactive and individualized. So I think schools taking a proactive approach and, you know, recognizing that even if students are out or if they're not out, there will be gender diverse young people within the school environment. And so not relying on students to have to come out to change policies, but instead, as you said, kind of listening to what students might need and taking a more proactive approach. Now, in terms of peer relationships, presumably some of these young people did have positive and happy relationships. But when it came to experiencing of bullying or things that might harm their mental health, tell us a little bit more about what their experience was. So, yeah, unfortunately, bullying was found to be really common. And that was both online and in person. And young people found bullying to be really difficult within the school environment and one finding that I think hasn't been explored much within the research is that sometimes teachers were also engaging within bullying behaviours and that highlights the importance of thinking about you know all people within the school environment. And how were how were those young people what were the sort of qualitative examples of what that was it sort of phobic language was it did they feel sort of discriminated against in certain situations? What, what did it look and feel like for them? Yeah, so inappropriate comments or language, I think, was a important one. There were some instances of physical assault and sexual assault as well. And in terms of the role that uh, teachers sometimes played, that was in uh, te- some teachers used uh, discriminatory language within lessons, for example which kind of legitimised it coming from other students. So teachers played a really kind of important role in that they were really able to either help or hinder gender diverse young people and sometimes were involved in yeah, legitimising transphobic language. So in terms of, we'll come back to sort of students' mental health in a minute. Mm-hmm. What sort of training would you like to see teachers do or schools provide? Because I know that there is a great appetite to learn. Teachers want to support young people and schools want to do their best by them. So what does that need to look like? You know, who who delivers it? What what is it? What messages does it need to do we need to think about? Yeah, and no, I think training is a really important thing. And I, I think it should be made compulsory for all teachers and all staff working within schools. Because one thing that came up within the research was that transphobic language wasn't treated as seriously as perhaps homophobic language or racist language. 
And that was due to the fact that views around trans issues were seen to be more of a personal opinion rather than about it being a right for young people not to be hearing that language. And so firstly, I think it's important for it to be compulsory. Um, In terms of what that training could look like, I mean, there are a number of amazing charities offering training for educators. And some examples are Stonewall, Gendered Intelligence, Mermaids as well. So I think if people are interested in finding training and resources, then looking at those organisations might be a really good place to start. And as you will know, Susie, there is a whole other area of thought, which we have to recognise here, that some people might say, well, those organisations are not providing balanced information. Some people might argue information can even harm children. So I've heard that from, you know, it's a very, very contested area. So how do teachers navigate some pressures that they might receive outside of school and what they feel they might need to do in school? I think we need to sort of bear that in mind, don't we? Yeah, definitely. No, I think it's really important to recognize there is a really contested area. And as you'll be aware, there's often news reports within the media about young people and access to medical treatment and things like that. And my approach to it is that it's just important to listen to young people themselves. And that's why we need, you know, more research on the experiences of young people. And research suggests that you know, gender inclusive and gender affirmative approaches are much better for gender diverse young people's mental health than kind of approaches which are different to that. And so that's why I think it's important to, yeah, kind of speak from the research and just prioritise young people's mental health. So tell us, again, this is contested too, what is the evidence to suggest that gender diverse young people have worse mental health than their cisgender counterparts? Tell us what the evidence is. Mm -hmm. Yep, so there's been quite a bit of evidence on mental health and research consistently suggests that gender diverse young people have worse mental health than cis young people. And gender diverse young people have worse mental health than other LGBT young people. So they seem to be a particularly at-risk group for negative mental health outcomes. And to really put it into perspective, one school report conducted by Stonewall found that 45% of the trans young people had attempted suicide at one point. So I think that just highlights how important it is to understand more about why young people are experiencing negative mental health outcomes. And one factor that's consistently, again, been found to be related to negative mental health is discrimination. So this is within adult populations and child populations. Discrimination is linked to poorer outcomes. So that highlights kind of the link between um, discrimination and mental health. But yeah, I think it's important to recognise that gender diverse young people do seem to be particularly at risk for poorer outcomes. And in terms of the more positive factors that are associated with better outcomes, there's some evidence to show that a supportive family increases the mental health of gender diverse young people. And things like activism have been found to improve the mental health of young people as well. So there's lots of different factors that impact mental health. So there are lots of protective factors, but also within the school environment, I think... The one thing we can all agree on is that 
listening to children is good and helping young people just be party to whatever they need in their own context is important. So I think those are lovely places to begin that aren't contested <laughs> and, and really just, I think, really leaning in and communicating with parents is really, really important. Now that becomes a little bit more challenging. There are legal requirements to do this and that when you're talking to parents about aspects of a, of a pupil's life, but it is important, isn't it, that parents, you know, are, are consulted and spoken to. And would you agree with that if, if schools are trying to support some of these young people? Yeah, definitely. I think including parents in that is really important. I think perhaps where it wouldn't be as appropriate as if the child wasn't out to their parents. In that case, it's obviously perhaps not the school's place to out that child to their parents. But if the parents are aware of the child's identity and are supportive of that, then I think it's really beneficial for schools to include parents when thinking about how best to support that child. The other thing I wanted to ask was about sort of anti-bullying policies. Again, sometimes schools can, if they're thinking of updating those, isn't that an area where pupils can be very much party to that process of thinking about what bullying looks like? It's a big term, but in our school environment, online, offline, what you know, where it happens within our school. And I think that would be, again, a very fruitful approach, wouldn't it, to create something truly bespoke? Yeah, absolutely. I think involving young people as much as possible is a really beneficial thing to do. And one finding from the research was that being involved in education of other students and staff was really important to the young people within the study. And that made them feel that they were making a difference, not just for themselves, but also their other LGBT friends and future students. And Susie, in the context of sort of international research, was has your study been sort of done in other countries? How does it sit within a wider context? Yeah, that's a really good question. So this was just a UK study and there's quite a bit of research in the US as well. And obviously that's a slightly different political climate, but there's not been a huge amount of research in general looking at the experiences of gender diverse young people. And so I think more research in different contexts is really important. And even within the UK, I think it would be really important for more research to look at different areas. So for example, is it better to be at a school that's within a city compared to a rural environment? And really trying to work out which settings are best for gender diverse young people. Now, in terms of optimal ways, because I'm obviously interested in parenting, if a child, a teenager says, oh, mom or dad, you know, I'm thinking I'm questioning my gender. I don't know whether I'm a boy or girl. I don't know. Give us your sort of from a research perspective. I'm always asked this question. What do you think is a nice way, optimal way to approach that? Yeah, I think that's a really important question. And I think for parents that are perhaps not familiar with a lot of the language around gender diversity. Maybe one place to start would be for parents to do a bit of research into the language and also just to be open to what their child is suggesting and aiming to support them in whatever way they can. And that might look like taking them to purchase different clothing or they might want to be trying out different names or pronouns within the home environment. But I think open is perhaps a word 
that is important when trying to respond in a sensitive way. And asking questions that are just sort of gentle and Mm. interested and not punitive or worried or alarmist. Certainly from my work, I mean, I'm conscious that there are many teenagers, especially now, experimenting with gender as well. And it might just, there are periods of time that they move through and move away from. And it's just a very gentle approach. Very recently, we did a webinar with a pediatrician who's an expert on autistic teens. And she said she'd noticed in her own practice that sometimes autistic teenagers who before diagnosis may not understand why they feel different and sort of latch on potentially to the idea I'm in the wrong body. So just to sort of, you know, provide a bigger context there, gender questioning can be a very common phenomenon within adolescence more generally. So I think parents just need to be aware that it's, you know, there can be different outcomes. It's not, sometimes it is about thinking about what's going on for that child in a wider way. Yeah, absolutely. I think many, many young people will question their gender identity at some point. And just because a child is questioning it at that moment, it doesn't mean anything about what outcome there will be in the long run. And so, yeah, I think being open and supportive is the best thing that parents can do. And one question I wanted to ask you about your research, it was part funded by Stonewall, was it? Yeah. So I'm just trying to imagine counter arguments, you know, people saying, oh, but it was funded by Stonewall. Does that not mean it's biased? Tell us a little bit about why it's not biased. (laughs) So partnering with Stonewall was really beneficial for the project because they've obviously got such a large reach across the UK. I don't think that that means that it's biased necessarily. It just helped us to reach, as I mentioned, over 3,000 young people. That was just a vehicle to find your sample, if you like. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us at Cambridge, at the Centre for Family Research, there's an entire research network devoted to LGBTQ plus research. Isn't that right? Yeah, definitely. So tell us what's going on there, because it sounds terribly exciting. Yeah, within the CFR, there's a number of studies going on at the moment, looking at different families, modern families. So yeah, part of my PhD research was on the experiences of trans and non-binary parents. We've also done a number of studies looking at lesbian mums and gay dads, bisexual parents as well. So there's lots of different really interesting studies here in the CFR. And what's beyond you ahead of this study? So you've done this lovely paper. What are you working on now? So now I'm working on a slightly different project, looking at the experiences of two mum families who have used a new route to parenthood, which is called reciprocal IVF, where one mother is the gestational parent and the other mother is the genetic parent. And it's looking at their experiences, which hasn't been done before. So that's really exciting. Wow. So lots of very interesting innovations in that area. So finally, you did mention earlier that, you know, there are resources or things that parents can use to get familiar with the language around some of these issues. You've mentioned a few things, but what would you say are the sort of go-to places? I mean, I know the NHS produced some helpful resources on language, but what would your go-to places be for resource? Yeah, I think the organisations that I mentioned earlier, so Stonewall have got lots of resources, Gendered Intelligence, Mermaids, there's now a number of nice picture books about how to 
speak to children about different genders and things like that. So there's, I think there's been a real growth in the number of resources, which is really exciting. Okay, well, thank you so much for telling us about your paper. And it was published in a very interesting journal. What's the journal called? The journal's called the Journal for LGBT Youth. So that sounds like if, if teachers or educators or parents are interested in learning more about the sort of academic work in this area, that's a go-to journal. Yeah, yeah, there's lots of really <laughs> interesting research in that journal. Okay, well, listen, thank you so much, Susie, for joining me today. And we look forward to telling everyone about your work. Thank you for having me. It's been great to talk to you. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.